You know, I don't, I don't hide my um, fandom uh, very well uh, that I'm a Dodger fan. I, I, I know it's kind of, and, and it's kind of an interesting thing. So growing up here, uh, I've always been asked, Bill, why are you so into the Dodgers? You grew up, you're born and raised in Huntington Beach. You, you should root for the Angels, right? This is an Angels church. Uh, uh, and, and I would tell you that I was compelled to root for the Dodgers by my dad. My dad was a Dodger fan. And he gave me no other option. I was kind of forced into it, right? But in a good way. Uh, his company had season tickets. His, uh, we got to go to a lot of games. I got to meet players. I got uh, autographs. I mean, there was a lot of flair with the option. It was, it was great. So, uh, but, but it was true that in some ways there were no other options given to me. I was never given the option of being an Angel fan. I, I suppose I could have chosen it, but it wasn't going to be given to me by my parents. So as a good father, I took away all the other options from my kids. Uh, they were going to grow up as Dodger fans as well. I think I've got a photo of them. Uh, you can see from a very young age, uh, I trained my kids to be Dodger fans, right? So... Um, uh, and we took away, we took away all their options. Uh, uh, now, that's challenging if you're a kid growing up in this church because uh, sooner or later you're going to have Mr. Madsen as a Sunday school teacher. And Mr. Madsen is a lifelong Angel fan, season ticket holder. And your kids, right, you're, you guys get, you come away with all this Angel swag, right? And so I, my kids would walk out of Sunday school with like hats and posters and bobbleheads. I'm like, Mr. Matson, me and you, we're gonna have we're gonna have words, son. Like it was like it was on. Uh, so I've I've actually started to try to compel Sawyer Hall to become a Dodger fan. I got I got I gave him a hat. I said if you wear this hat thirty times, then I'll take you to a Dodger game. So Manny, me and you can take him and Dod- first Dodger dog and all that kind of stuff, uh, kind of thing. So. Uh, but it's not, I mean, let's be honest, that's not a really big deal to be compelled into liking a sports team. You probably have uh, something that your folks kind of said, this is just what we do. Um, but, but think bigger picture. Isn't it interesting? Think about the things that do compel you in life. Think about the things in life that you do. Uh, I, I don't know what you think about that word, as Mitchell was mentioning it. What, what compels you? Uh, I'm a firstborn. How many of you are firstborn, kind of driven people, right? You get like, you're like, uh, yeah, uh, you're already taking too long with this. I'm timing. Like you're like, you're, right? We're really precise and driven and, and, and want to perform. We're driven by performance sometimes. Uh, my first job here at the church was to be the youth pastor, and I was driven to build the biggest youth, in the, uh, youth group in the city. Not a great, like, impulse. So we, we built a really big group. It wasn't a healthy group, but it, we built a big group. But I was, I was driven by this kind of uh, sense of performance. Uh, some people are, are driven or, or compelled by uh, success. Like, uh, they, they are what gets them up and makes them do all the things they do in life is because they want to be successful. They want to make six figures, seven figures, early retirement, right? Something like that. Others are compelled by maybe something uh, more like acceptance or, or love or, or uh, some way of being liked and uh, uh, it's relational. Uh, you know, when you're uh, young, maybe even, I don't even know if this leaves being young because uh, I hear adults say the same thing. They're like, only five people liked my photo. It's like, Mom, like you're 70 years old, it's okay if you don't have a lot of friends on Instagram yet. It's okay. Like, don't, don't feel bad about it, right? So we can be this, but, but I don't know if maybe we're, we're thinking, uh, maybe we think too softly about this word. So let me give you a biblical definition. When, when the Bible uses the word compel, here's what it means. It means to hem in. 
to hold on both sides, to take away all the options, to give no, way, no other way out, to back into a corner. And I know some of you are like, whoa, whoa, Bill, no one backs baby into a corner. Like, I, I, I get it. But this is what this means. It means that you feel like you're backed into a corner. There's no way out. This is the only thing I can do. And, and so when we think about this, we can, uh, we can realize that some of the things that compel us in life uh, might be fear-driven. Uh, fear of rejection, fear uh, of uh, failure, right? But we're, we're no longer slaves, are we, to fear? Uh, we are children of God. We don't have to be slaves. We don't have to be compelled by things that we're afraid of and, and, and to do things in life because we're afraid, because we're driven by fear. But there's a man named the Apostle Paul. The word apostle means uh, uh, to be sent. He's, kind of, he's commissioned by God to bring out the good news. He was kind of one of the, the we use this as a word to kind of uh, signify his authority as someone God sent out. And so the Apostle Paul said something compelled him. He said it this way. He said, for Christ's love compels us. When he described what he was doing and why he was doing it, he said, for Christ's love compels us. He said this, uh, that, that the love of God awakened him. It, it awakened him in such a way that he could no longer be the old person he was and that from that point on, he had to live his life differently. He had to live not, no longer for himself. He had to live for the one who loved him uh, the way he did. And so I want to give you a big idea that we'll see in the passage today, but we'll also see as we're going to, as we prepare for a time of communion, I want you to see that this actually probably could be best uh, described as Paul's, maybe like a mission statement for Paul. We'll see it as a big idea in his life as well. So here's the big idea that we're going to see today, is that when we awaken to God's love, it compels us to no longer live for ourselves. Uh, it compels us to no longer live for ourselves. And, and we're in a series called Awakening, and what we're looking at is different people in the Bible, the way that God uh, would awaken them and, and, and kind of bring them to, uh, back to himself or, or to give them a way of, of uh, discovering what it looked like to, to live their life in a different way. Because all of us drift. We find this in life. We find ourselves arriving at places we didn't necessarily mean to get it to, Sometimes we're just aiming at the wrong target altogether. Uh, but there are times in our lives where God wants to awaken us, where he wants to, to help us find our way back to him. And this is what we're looking at, some different ways in which we see people being awakened by God, the way they find their way back to him. And we're trying to discover the ways that we can uh, 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 see his life and his love and his plans taking root in our life. And the awakening of the Apostle Paul is so important because so much of the Bible really is from him or, by, or about him. So if you think about your, your uh, Bible, the New Testament part of the Bible, Paul wrote 13 of the letters that are in the Bible. And some even think maybe he wrote Hebrews. We don't know. Uh, but not only that, but when you read the book of Acts, which is the, the narrative, the story of how the church began after Jesus, uh, we realize that half of the book is about Paul. It's about his life, about his conversion, about his missionary journeys, about him spreading the, the, the uh, gospel all over the world. In fact, other than Jesus in the New Testament, no other person is mentioned more than Paul. And so he's a significant character. But, but to, to see the awakening of the Apostle Paul really is to see the awakening of Saul of Tarsus. 
See, Saul of Tarsus is who he was before this. It really is who he is. But as Saul of Tarsus, uh, when we meet him as Saul of Tarsus, what we see is uh, a religious zealot. He was, he was educated. He was passionate for his faith. And when Christianity rose up, he saw this as an absolute uh, 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 you know, heresy to his beliefs. And he made it his personal mission to exterminate Christianity from the face of the earth. And so we want to see what happens in this. And so really to understand this, you have to know a little bit about his story and the way that God awakened him. Uh, In the book of Acts, we see that uh, God raised up some new leaders in the church. One of them was a man named Stephen. And there's a moment where Stephen is basically sharing God's story. Uh, He's walking through the story of God, and as he's walking through the story of God, he's helping them understand how Jesus is the fulfillment to Israel's story. And people become so offended by what he's saying that they pick up, they pick up stones off the ground and they begin to, to, to bludgeon him to death. They kill him. They stone him to death. And this is when we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus because it says that Saul of Tarsus was standing by giving his approval uh, for this murder. And, and then chapter 8 begins with this, this idea this, uh, that Saul began to destroy the church. A great persecution broke out at this moment. Uh, There was a threat, and Saul made it his mission. It said that he went door to door, house to house. He's trying to find them. So imagine uh, we end worship today, and I I say to all of you, hey, when you go home today, um, uh, go into your homes, lock the doors, pray, because uh, Saul is on a rampage, and and there's no telling if he may show up at your house tonight. And, and I'm giving you instructions, but imagine that fear that you would have to live in, knowing that you might be ripped out of your house or someone in your home might be ripped out of your house, taken, arrested, and you don't know what's going to happen next. This is what he was doing. In fact, in his own words, he described it this way. He said, I was convinced uh, that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was going to do anything I could to take him down. And take down his followers. He says, I did it in Jerusalem. I did it on the authority of the chief priests. He says, I put many people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against him. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Uh, one, one description is this, is that he was breathing out murderous threats. I mean, this is a bad dude. I mean, we would be terrified of this guy. In fact, some of you would have some kind of vigilante kind of response to this. You would think, for the good of the church, I probably need to take out Saul of Tarsus. That would be your impulse. And while he's on one of these journeys, he's on his way to Damascus, he's on this, this road, he has an encounter with Jesus. A light, a voice, thunder. And he just falls off his donkey. He falls to the ground. He's cowering in fear. And he's like, who are you, Lord? And he hears the worst thing possible. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I mean, the very person who he's trying to destroy his memory, destroy his followers, destroy everything. And in this moment of holy fear, it is Jesus himself. And he's just trying to get in the most comfortable position to take the lightning bolt of execution he can. And all he hears is, go into the city and I will tell you what happens next. 
and he is struck by this awesome moment. What's going to happen next? And for three days he goes, he eats nothing, he drinks nothing, he's just taken over. There's scales over his eyes, he can't see anything, and he has to rethink his whole life and everything that he's believed up to that moment. In the city, while this is happening, there's a man named Ananias, probably someone that Saul is on his way to arrest and hunt. And Ananias is given a vision. Uh, Ananias, there's a man, Saul of Tarsus, he's going to come into the city. Your job is to take care of him. And Ananias' response is, God, I don't think you actually know who Saul of Tarsus is, so let me inform you. And he starts telling him about Saul of Tarsus. And And the response is, Go. He doesn't say, he's just like, go, do what I just asked you to do, and I'll tell you what to do next. And then first words we see of these two coming together is the word, Brother Saul. He receives them as a brother into the church. They begin, there's a baptism, the scales fall off his eyes. He, he, I, mean, I mean, for baptism to happen means he comes to this conclusion, I was completely wrong, and Jesus is the one true Messiah the, the savior of the world, and I am going to become his follower, and he is baptized. And, and it's interesting, it says that even he tried to go back to the disciples, but they didn't trust him. They thought he was trying to infiltrate the, the, the early church. And a man named Barnabas, uh, that's his nickname, son of encouragement, it means his name was Joseph. Barnabas, who had kind of taken uh, uh, him under his wing, had to, had to vouch for him and say, he's okay. He had this vision. God is doing something. I don't know why he chose to do it, but he did it. And Paul says it this way. He says, this is why he did it. This is the description he gives in 1 Timothy. He's telling Timothy, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And he says, if he could love me, if he could show patience with me, if he could forgive me, he could forgive any of us. And I don't know what you think you've done to think that you can't earn God's love or, or receive God's love or, 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 or somehow receive grace and mercy. And Paul says, you have no idea what I did. No one deserved punishment more than me. That's not who he is and that's not what he showed me. He showed me his incredible love. His love was relentless. It chased me down even when I was chasing him down and found me. And so this radical life change happened. And so we, uh, we see this moment where he starts to go by his Roman name, which is Paul. Uh, and so instead of knowing him as Saul of Tarsus, his, his Jewish name, we know him from his, his uh, Roman name, Paul. And I want you to see what happens, how, this, how he describes this awakening. So would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? And we're going to look at a little piece of a letter he wrote to a church. And he's writing to this church, and, and the moment that we're entering into this letter, let me just help you understand what's happening. He's, he's describing something. He's saying, I want you to know that we are citizens of heaven. We belong to heaven now. We're citizens of God and, and heaven. And so this, this earth is not our home. So if we're here, we, we live by faith. 
uh, not by sight. This is not how it all is going to finish. And so he's helping them understand uh, to be, uh, when you're away from the body here, you're present with the Lord. It's kind of this whole big, big picture thing. But, but he comes to this interesting point, and I want to just kind of cheat and give you two extra verses. Look at verse 9. It says this. Uh, he says, So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we've done while in the body, whether good or bad. So hold on to that thought, because you're going to see this thought come up. This was an important thought to him. This thought is if we, we belong to heaven, we belong to God, someday we're going to stand before him and we're going to give account of, of our lives. This is, this is the first thing I want you to see today. It's kind of a, kind of a bonus awakening, but we will all give an, a, an account of our life. Let's not miss that. Uh, we will all give an account of our life. Now, he has had this radical experience and if anyone was going to tell you that thing should, that should freak you out, he would say, look, I encountered him. I was changed by his love. And as a result, you're going to see that, that he's kind of looking forward to that. Now, he approaches this with a holy fear. The fact that we are going to stand before an awesome, infinite God who's so far beyond us, he says that should cause you to a moment of pause and go, I should think about this. But he's going to try to show you how to think about this and how he thought about this. So verse 11, he dives in. He says, okay, so this is going to happen. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Like if we know this is going to happen, we're going to tell others about it as well so they're prepared for it. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your, your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, by, uh, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than, in, uh, than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, people thought Paul was out of his mind, I'll explain that. As some say, it's for God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. There it is. Here's what's behind me. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so as he comes into this uh, moment, we see this, he's saying, look, I'm going to give you an opportunity to get behind me. And so that word opportunity is kind of a, a strategic military word. He's like, I, I'm going to kind of let you kind of build ranks around an idea. And he, he's telling them uh, about who he is. I'm not like the others that come into your town and speak and, and perform and do all these things. I'm, I'm different from them. And he's saying, here's why I do what I do and why I put up with all the things I put up with. I was awakened by God's love. That, that somehow the one who was sinless became sin for us. There was one who took on himself everything that I deserved. And I am so overwhelmed by this that I cannot help but do things differently. I experienced something, this awesome love. Uh, in the last service, it was, it was uh, the choir led this just beautiful little chorus of Jesus loves me, right? The little, uh, what you sang as a kid at VBS, at Vacation Bible School. And it was kind of, it was just so fascinating. And I asked the people there, I mean, it's maybe the same for you, but I, we, as we sang that, it was just, you could feel the smiles. I'm in the front row. I can feel everyone smiling as they're singing it from behind me. And I thought, I asked them, how many times have you sung that over your life? And you just realize, like, it's in the thousands for, for many of them. 
And I thought for, for us, how many times in our home I've, I've listened to my wife sing this over our children. I mean, thousands of times over the last 20 years. This amazing truth of, of it, this, this simple but profound thing, how much Jesus loves us. And how the Bible reveals it in, in story after story, in principle after principle, in, in, in detail after detail, that you are loved by God and he has demonstrated it through Jesus, his life, his death, and, and, and now his life in us. He's, he's raised and he's alive in us. And he says, so he says, this is how I experienced it. So here's the first thing. There's two things I want you to see today. The first is this, is that God's love awakens us to no longer live for ourselves. Uh, this is kind of a big thing that we're talking about, that God's love awakens us to no longer live for ourselves. See, they thought Paul was crazy because unlike the other speakers, he wasn't asking for money. Uh, he wasn't looking for applause. In fact, what we know is he wasn't probably the, the best speaker. And he took nothing from anyone. In fact, he worked, he built tents. Uh, that's what he did to make a living. He did, even though he could ask for money, he chose not to. And he, he was persecuted. He was beaten and imprisoned and all these things. And people were like, you're out of your mind. And he said, I want you to understand why. I cannot help but do this. I cannot help this. I've died to my old life. I'm not the same person you used to know or you heard about. I'm different. And see, the early church, think about these first disciples of Jesus. They thought Jesus was going to change the world, didn't they? But they had no idea how he was going to do it. And when they watched him die on that cross, they thought they had lost everything. They were gaining everything. He was saving the world. He was changing their lives. He was changing the world. And they began to be different. They, they began to be people who no longer lived for themselves. The early church was marked by people who no longer lived for themselves. They were so transformed by love, they could no longer live for themselves. I was struck by the, uh, one of the stories this week. Again, another terrible uh, act, a shooting at UNC Charlotte. And some of you might have heard about Riley Howard. Uh, he's uh, believed to be the second fatality in this. And the reason why was because he ran at the shooter and took the shooter down. And he saved probably a number of people as a result. He lost his own life, but he saved a number of people from that. And, and so the, the question, of course, is what compelled Riley to run at a shooter instead of away? And there's two answers that are being given. Uh, one of the police chiefs said, he did what, what you're trained to do. You're to run, you're to hide, you're to fight. And so the, the police uh, uh, chief was saying, you know, he did what he had to do. He had to fight. But if you listen to the teachers, you listen to the family, you listen to the friends, they would tell you something different compelled him. That he loved people. That he cared about people. That he ran at the gunman, not out of a sense of fear, but out of love to protect people. And it's such an impressive thing. See, that is how the first church lived. They didn't run away from trouble. They ran at trouble. When the plague started, they didn't run. When everyone else was running away, the church actually ran in. They weren't afraid to die because they knew they were citizens of heaven. They knew that this is just a piece of my existence. That's not the whole thing. It's just a, it's just a small part of it. And they, they, they adopted children that weren't their own. 
when, when in the culture people would take children as unwanted and kind of just leave them to the elements to die, they would go and scoop them up and, and make them their own sons and daughters and, and, and raise them as their own. They gave away their possessions. No one cared about becoming rich. They cared about everyone who was in need being taken care of. They gave themselves away. They gave their lives away. Why? Because they were loved. They knew that as God loved them, as they experienced by love, they were compelled by it. They couldn't help but, but to love and to give their lives away as a response. And that's how they lived. And, and they saw the world differently. Notice how Paul says it. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We, we, we just don't see the world the same anymore. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he, was commi- uh, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. No, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. If you're no longer going to live for yourself, then what are you going to live for? Or for whom are you going to live for? And the answer is this. We see the second thing. Here's the second thing, that God's love awakens us to, know, uh, to, to live uh, for our king, for our new king. The, the love of God awakens us. So that, uh, there, there was a new force kind of being, as he's being compelled by this love of God, there was, he, he knew he now had to live for this king. And, and I use this language intentionally because it's interesting, the language he uses of himself, that I'm now an ambassador. And so again, being a citizen of heaven, uh, ambassadors go into another land. They represent the, the king or the president or whoever's in charge, but they go into a new land and they say, on behalf of the person in charge that I represent, Here's what we want you to know. And he's saying, we come in on behalf of heaven to make known that God wants peace and life and love and relationship with you all. And so we as ambassadors come into this world and make these things known. The earth needs to know uh, with the conviction of heaven's love what it is to live out and to know this love, that, that, that this is our role. We cannot see this world the same. We have to live differently. We see people differently. And you can see what he's describing. In some ways, think of what it would have been like for Saul of Tarsus. He had this incredible trade that had happened, that Jesus took all his crud upon himself and then offered to him all the glory and righteousness of who he was. This incredible, I mean, you're like, that's a dumb deal. Like, you don't win. But what God wins in that trade is us. And this is what he wants, is that he wants you. And Paul, he could somehow look that somehow, some way, everything stupid I did in life, 
everything rebellious I did in life, he took that away. And when I stand before God, he sees me with the righteousness of his son. And he loves me as a son, as a daughter. All he has is now mine. So I don't look at the world any, uh, at the same any longer. And so it's one thing to experience God's love uh, and realize it for yourself. But, but in some ways we realize it, I don't have an option anymore but to, but to make this love known in this world. Uh, you might have noticed there's a lifeguard tower growing out in front of our, our campus. Now I hear the rumblings. How much did that cost? That's dumb. I don't like the color. All the different things. That's fine. You can, you can rumble all you want um, about it. But here's why it's there. It's there as a signpost first to us uh, and then to the community. It faces out, not in. And it faces out to a community because we no longer see people the same. We see them with spiritual eyes. We see these are the people that God loves as well. And, and a lifeguard tower is there. It's not just a symbol of the beach, but it's a symbol of rescue. Uh, what does a, we, we know a, a, a lifeguard what does a lifeguard do what do good lifeguards do they don't all meet together inside the lifeguard tower and bring in like everyone brings a casserole and have a potluck and and have like little meetings and say isn't fellowship great no they are on alert and they're looking out and anyone who's in trouble they're ready to respond and when they see someone in trouble they don't say wow that water looks too cold or that tide looks too strong or that shark's teeth look too sharp no they have stopped living for themselves and they dive in and they provide rescue for whoever's in need. And I know this because one time I was a middle school kid and I'm out in the water and I'm treading and I see the lifeguard coming out to tread and pulling his little buoy and I'm like, I'm out there just treading water like, who's he coming for? Like, someone's in tr- I'm trying to look for where he's going and he's coming, he's getting closer to me. And I'm like looking like, who else is out here? He must be under the water and he comes right up to me. He's like, grab on. And I didn't realize that I'm in a riptide. I'm getting pulled out and I have, I have no idea what's about to happen. But he was watching, he saw me, he grabbed on. Now when you're 12 years old in middle school and you have to grab onto lifeguard's buoy, it's not pleasant, right? It's a little embarrassing. But I'm glad he did. I'm glad he was there. And he pulled me out of the water. He pulled me in. But that's what lifeguards do. They see it in that way. And this is a reminder not that we are a beach church, but that God rescued us and that we now live to rescue others. All of us are here today because someone, someone cared about you. Someone acted uh, in a way of rescue. And someone was an ambassador to you. Someone came for you. And we're going to go for others. And if one person in this community finds eternal life through someone here that wants to live out God's rescue plan, it is all worth it. And so this is the church we're going to be. We're going to be a church that grows deep, but we're going to be a church that grows wide. And we're going to look constantly for those that are in need. See, this is why I want you to sign up for Restore HB Uh, and do one of these projects because I want in the same way the people in the community to go, what is with you guys? You're weird. You're out of your minds. Why do you give up your Saturday to clean up our school? We don't even want to clean up our school because we would say we have experienced a love that we just can't really get our whole head and heart around. We just know it's, it's, 
it's amazing, it's overwhelming, it's relentless, it's, it's beyond us. And so we want to love people the best way we know how in the same way that we've been loved. So I want to give you a chance to respond. In a moment, we're going to have a time of communion. But I, I, I listen to this response and think about this because this response I think you're going to see really was the response that, that is the only response that Paul thought was appropriate. And it's this, to offer yourself fully to God. He, he was hemmed in. He was backed into a corner. He had no other way out. There was no other response that made sense to him but to, as a response to the love of God, he was compelled by the love of God to offer his whole life to him, to offer everything about him to God. So in Romans, he says it this way. Here's a, he, he, let me just show you that this theme continued in every letter he wrote to the Romans. He said this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And then he says this phrase, this is your true and proper worship. He says, this is the only response. That phrase, true and proper worship, means it's the only logical response. In view of God's mercy, in view of God's love for you, there's only one thing that makes sense. Offer yourself completely to him. You have to, when the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you get up, you walk up, you place yourself on the altar. Then at the end of the day, you clock out, you go home, you go to sleep, and guess what you do the next day? You get up, you go, you place yourself on the altar. I'm all your, every, he's like, you're a living sacrifice. You don't offer it once and it's over. Every day you offer yourself fully to God. And you understand, he says, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You let him re-change the way you see everything. Or, or when he was writing to the Philippians, he said this. He says, I, it's not that I've already obtained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what's behind and I strain towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. See, there it is again, this idea that all the stuff in the past, and can I ask some of you to do this today as we take communion? Everything that you are allowing to be, this burden, this past, this, the, these failures, can you just say it's all rubbish? It's all, it, the way his word is dung. It's all crap. Just throw it away. Be done with it. That's literally the word he uses. It's over. I, pr- I pr- get rid of that and I press on for that day. Do you remember the first Star Wars? I guess it's actually episode four. I don't know. But you remember that scene at the very end when they're having the, 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 this big like award ceremony? And like you've been like, you've been taken through this whole thing and then they're placing that on and then uh, uh, Chewbacca does his little Wookiee call, uh, pour some out for uh, Peter Mayhew uh, passed away this week, right? I, I, someone has to do a Wookiee. Did anybody have a Wookiee voice? You can do the Wookiee call. No one? I thought Manny had it in him. No? 
But, but when, you, when he gets, I don't know how to do it. But when he has that moment, you're like, yeah, fighting the dark forces is worth it. Yes, you were just so pumped. And everyone's feet were barely touching the ground as you left that. We get so pumped about that. It's a movie. But think about when we are all there. And we're watching one by one. And he's saying to each of us, Joe, well done. And we're like, yeah, Joe, way to go, Joe. Allie, well done. And everyone's like, yes, remember Allie? She did, and we are just, our feet aren't going to touch the ground. And he says, that's what I press towards. That, I, I, my mind is fixed on this. Notice he said, here, I'll give you one last one. He says it this way. First, it, again, to the Corinthians, he writes, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And then he says it this way. Everyone who competes in the games goes to the strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. So therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Right? You run to win. You run because there's that day coming when you're awarded the prize. And what, what does a, a, a good runner do, he says? You fix your eyes on the prize. Like when you look at runners and you watch sprinters run, like they don't look left and right like we did as kids when we were racing our friends. They are fixed. They only see the tape. They have vision. And we have to have vision. But they have passion. He says, I beat my body, I train, I, I, I work towards this, and we have to train like people who want to win. I mean, I, I would never win a race because I don't want to put myself through that kind of training of running, right? But in this life, I have to hear this and go, man, am I going to be devoted to this life, to this, this thing? I want to run in such a way. You look at those thighs of those runners, like you don't just get that. You build that. Those lives. And so in just a moment, uh, the usher's gonna uh, pass the tray to you. Uh, and it's a chance for us to remember these words. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. Broken for you, shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. He put on display how loved you are. I can't think of a better way for you to just sense that you are loved deeply by God. And so when you're ready, I want you to take a moment to think about it, and when you're ready, you can eat and drink it. Uh, but I want you to just to remember this. Uh, there's this incredible thing, this incredible way in which we are, we, we experience this love in a moment like this, and we find ourselves compelled by it to say, I cannot be the same person walking out this door in five minutes have to be different not to earn his love but because of his love we as christians we don't do these things to earn it we have already been loved this way and this this is a moment to remember that but because we've been loved this way it compels us to no longer live for ourselves but to live for the one who died for us and was raised again let's pray And so, Father, as we take a time to remember your son, we just pray that your spirit would be uh, a powerful teacher and guide in this moment.
helping us understand the sin that we want to uh, give over to you, the failure that we don't want to hold on to anymore. We, w- we want to leave it behind and press on towards the things that you have now for us. And so help us to run now. Help us to run this race. Uh, help us to remember you and all that you've done. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. When you're ready, eat, drink, and remember the love of Jesus.